You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Christopher Media, let's make some noise. Marnie's been a bad girl. And if she's allowed a second chance, she'll be even worse. You don't love me. I'm just something you caught. That's right, you are. I caught something really wild this time, haven't I? Sean Connery and Tippi Hedren star in a masterful tale of obsession. I can't, I can't, I can't. What sort of demon lives inside Marnie? Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me once again is Professor Tanya Modleski. Hello. Also back in the booth this week is Professor Susan White. Hello. This week we are discussing one of Alfred Hitchcock's most contentious films, Marnie. Released in 1964, the film stars Tippi Hedren as the titular heroine, or perhaps anti-heroine, an itinerant thief who gets caught and essentially blackmailed into marriage with Mark, played by Sean Connery. Mark thinks Marnie is broken and takes it upon himself to fix her, diving deep into her childhood trauma. Now, we'll be getting into spoilers galore on this episode, so if you haven't seen Marnie, feel free to turn off the podcast and come back after you've seen all the red-tinged melodrama. Now, Susan, when was the first time you saw Marnie, and what did you think? I was an undergraduate, probably in a film class, and I liked it. My initial impressions were really positive. Although I saw Mark as a very problematic character <laughs> at the time. How about you, Tanya? I don't remember when I first saw it, but I do remember thinking that I did not think it was a very good film. And it's something that, you know, for me, it grew on me as, as time went on and as I read more about it. I did not like Tippi Hedren as an actress. I kind of agree with the screenwriter that there was like, what did she call it? Longer in French. Um, that this, it, it felt like a little long, a little bit bloated. But anyway, changed my mind about that. So, <laughs> so we can we can skip over those initial impressions of mine. Yeah, I took a long time to warm to this one, and I still. This isn't one of those movies that I go back to very often when it comes to Hitchcock. Like, give me. North by Northwest, I'll watch that whenever, Psycho, but Marnie is not one that I'm just like, let's pop in Marnie and have a good movie night. It's not necessarily a movie like that. I think that even Louise Latham's performance as Marnie's mother makes me want to go back and watch the film again because she's so fantastic. She is. She absolutely is. It's amazing to me that she is both the young mother and the older mother, that that's the same actress as both roles. Like, for the longest time, I thought that it was two actresses playing that part. Yeah, some crew members, according to Tony Morrill's book, uh, did not recognize her when she came out to shoot the young Mrs. Edgar scenes because she looked completely different. The pacing of the movie is strange for me at times, just the way that they kind of – the story starts to tell itself. Like it starts off very traditionally, like we see kind of the aftermath of a crime. We're following this yellow bag out onto the train platform, and we're getting introduced to Marnie. We're getting introduced to Mark and to the crime that Marnie has committed. And then you would think it would kind of 
keep going along there, but then this break to go see her mother. Well, first to see the horse and then the mother. That, right, the horse and then the mother. <laughs> I think that the purse scene is actually really interesting and consonant with Hitch's obsession with purses, you know, like as you see in Rear Window, for example, the importance of the purse. And we don't see her face, you know, so, as you know, it's a little unusual in that way. Yeah, we just see that dark hair. There's also that moment in Suspicion where Joan Fontaine, where Cary Grant is trying to reach into her purse and she snaps it shut in front of his face. Oh, my God. Yeah, you can't get much more vaginal symbolism than that. No, 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 you cannot. (laughs) That was kind of a Marnie move, actually. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, that very glamorous reveal of her after she washes out the dark and she pulls her head up and the hair and everything. It's its really, really super stagey, but it's fine. And it goes very well with the Herman score at that point, I yeah. think. Mm-hmm. It, it's like yeah. Rita Hayworth in Gilda when mm-hmm. she flips her hair up like that. Um, sure, I'm decent. <laughs> I'm decent, I know. And it's funny because Marnie says the same thing to her mother. Oh, I'm yeah. decent. You know, I, I have nothing else, but I'm te- decent. Yeah. I'm a liar and a thief <laughs> and, yeah. and a bunch of other things, but I am decent. Yeah, her hair plays such a huge role. Like between her hair and that little girl's hair, that whole idea of her going back to her mom's place and having that little neighbor girl there as kind of like a stand-in, her her mom kind of wanting to do it right the second time. I was just going to say, if you think about vertigo, too, and hair, I mean, George Tolles in his and one of his essays on Hitchcock talks a lot about Hitchcock's fetishism with women's hair. He actually got rid of a scene where the novel is in the first person and so we and we hear a lot more about Marnie's childhood and one thing that happened was girls were teasing her because she had lice or what you know they called nits in her hair and that was supposed to be there contrasted with the way that Jesse's hair was that would have been very weird in the film I think mm. Speaking about the book, what's so interesting, we're speaking about the mother, what's so interesting about the book, if I remember correctly, is that, you know, in the end, um, the psychiatrist says that what source of Marnie's problem is, is that she wanted the love of a father. And I think that's so interesting that Hitchcock changed it. And it's all about Marnie wanting the love of a mother. And that's one thing I think, one reason why feminists find this a fascinating film. One of the many reasons. One of the many reasons. Yeah. And uh, in the novel, the mother actually dies. So there's no Mm -hmm. big psychoanalytic revelation at the end of the novel with the mother. Marnie turns out didn't, kill anyone and she didn't shoot Forio. There are all of these interesting choices that they made. Did she think that she killed someone? Uh, I don't think so. No, no, she didn't. Marnie's mother strangled her newborn baby. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I just reread it, so <laughs> it's fresh in my mind. It's a good read. Is Marty carrying around all that guilt for this? No, she just had a really... She doesn't know about it, does she? Uh, No, she doesn't know about it. And she 
was bullied a lot and grew up in a really rough neighborhood. Uh, she started stealing when she was 10 years old. So there was this backstory about her being a thief from when she was a child. The horses are interesting. I talked a lot about horses when we did uh, the Rocking Horse winner uh, a couple months ago with Maida McDonough. Just the way that horses can symbolize so many things, especially sexuality. And I think that definitely comes into play here because horses are such a major part of Marnie. Yes, and everybody, the audience always laughs when Marnie says to her horse, Florio, oh, Florio, if you want to bite anyone, bite me. I think that Graham and Hitchcock, and I think I'm again stealing from Moral, said that the horse was a father figure. And, you know, the script was worked on by three people, although only J. Allen Preston got credit. And I don't know if she was... She had that interpretation, but Evan Hunter, who had the second go at it, was in analysis at the time. And so who knows if it came out of that or something like that. But the horse is the father. Yeah, wasn't Hitchcock like fascinated by the whole psychoanalysis stuff? Oh, yeah, he was really fascinated. But the horse is a father. To me, the desire for the desire in, in the film is so blatantly for the mother that I don't even get it. <laughs> I do find the horse thing puzzling, um, and I think it is. You're saying there were no horses in the book? I don't remember. No, no, I read she, the book some years ago. Horse. She had a horse in the book, but... Oh, that's right, and the horse stood for the father, and uh, what Marnie really wanted was the father's love. And so the horse kind of is a holdover, but then I think the whole emphasis on the mother, which is something that a lot of film critics non-female feminist film critics kind of slight the, the role of the mother and yet that's so crucial but the way she I says mean, goodbye sugar pop at the end you know it's just heartrending. and he just takes her away it's like okay now you know she's cured bye mom yeah. you know i'll bring her back sometime for a little visit i don't want to go to jail i'd rather live with poignant. you so many people wanting to either jail Marnie or fix Marnie. And it's just, it gets a little much sometimes. I mean, the whole idea of Mark, the tamer of wild animals, and seeing Marnie as this wild animal who needs to be tamed, it just seems like there's, well, there's so many movies where men need to fix women. And this is definitely one of those. It's so ambiguous in the sense that. On the one hand, you kind of feel that the movie is going in that direction and that he is curing her. But on the other hand, there's so much that's pulling away from that, you know, that or the satisfaction that one would normally feel in a typical Hollywood movie or something like that to happen. So you have you have a tremendous amount of ambiguity, I think, in relation to the characters and their relationship. And I think that's the source of, of the fascination that the film has held for so many Hitchcock scholars, at least. The only way that, you know, there's any belief in this heterosexual couple at the end, frankly, is because it's Sean Connery and yeah. that he was such a, you know, a sex symbol and Hitchcock was looking for someone who was a powerful sex symbol. So I think that glosses over some of the really horrible things that actually happen in the film, like, of course, yeah. rape. Yeah, that rape scene. I mean, that's pretty much what I think 
drove uh, Evan Hunter off of the film was not wanting to get into that nearly as much as Hitchcock wanted to. But then there's that whole question of whether the rape scene doesn't paradoxically make it a more feminist film. And that those kinds of questions were, Susan, you were present at that interview at the Hitchcock, what was it? The celebration of his birth. Yeah. Where people were saying that, you know, by inserting the rape scene that somehow, you know, we felt more for Marnie and we judged the man more harshly than we would have if 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 Evan Hunter's script had been followed. And then there was all that business about the female scriptwriter not wanting to see it as a rape and that whole question right. of whether it was a rape or not and the way that has raged in film circles, which I'm sure, Susan, you agree with me, it's absolutely ridiculous because it's so clearly a rape. Right. And it's like blackmail where, as you pointed out, you know, it's, there's a kind of illusion of the fact that this is a rape. Now, it's very clearly yep. through the acting, through the motion of the curtain and all of that, that it's a rape and that has been, you know, really glossed over. But um, Hitchcock wanted it to be more clearly a rape. And he said a lot of really awful things that were quoted by, I, I don't know if it's Spoto, uh, who is a little bit of a scandal monger, quoted these, but he said, excuse the vulgarity, I want a close-up on her face when he's sticking it in her. Right. I think so. Evan Hunter actually said that that's what Hitchcock said to him. And uh, yeah, I don't think it was photo. I, I really think it was Hunter himself. And yes, Hunter begged not to have the rape and um, wrote a letter and wrote an alternate scene. And, and that's when Hitchcock said he wanted it. You know, he wanted the camera right on her face as he stuck it in her. And does that, that, does, that, um, does that preclude a, a feminist? reading, which I honestly find no. in, in yeah. light of what you wrote on blackmail, you know, the look on her face is so powerful. You know, she's not going to enjoy this at all. You know, that's out of the question. And then she tries Well, to maybe we it. could just, I don't know, for, for any listeners who maybe are not that familiar with the scene, the reason um, some people feel that they can talk about it as an ambiguous scene is that he has promised that he will not touch her and have sex with her. And then one night he just gets fed up and he storms in and um, it's clear that he's about to um, have sex with her and she screams no. And he pulls off, he, he, he rips off her clothes, but then he covers her with her, with the bath, his bathrobe says he's sorry. And then holds her tenderly for a second and then lays her down and the camera is on her face at that point lays her down on the bed she has a glassy eyed stare it's obviously horrific to her then you have a cut to Sean Connery's face moving towards the camera with his mm -hmm. eyes not loving as some critics say but looking really menacing and to me terrifying and then you have her trying to commit suicide. And yeah. after that, you still have people saying, well, but, you know, he does put the robe on. 
<laughs> no, no, you describe it extremely well. That is exactly what happens. It's not ambiguous. That's one thing. And he's yeah, and he's like saying he wants the camera right on her face. I think that's interesting because it was, but then it moved away to show his menacing, you know, especially to fixate on his menacing stare at her as he comes towards her to rape her so that the camera is equally on him and the menace that he represents. For the first part of the movie, we're supposed to empathize with Mark, but after that scene, it's almost impossible for me to be with the guy, for him to be the hero. For me, it's just, you know, Marnie kind of is on that line because she's a thief and a liar for the first part of the movie. And then after that happens, my heart goes to her. So it's, I don't know if that was the end. Wait, wait, wait. Your heart doesn't go to her until then? (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) I don't mean to sound belligerent, but... I mean, when she's in the car with Mark and just you can tell everything that she's saying is a lie. But I mean, yeah, I guess it's when he catches her. I, you know, that I I have been pulling for her, especially during the robbery scene, because you want to see somebody get away with it. And then she says, why don't you love me, mama, when she visits her mother? I guess I just have too many issues wrapped up in that. And, And then he says how he's like trapped her like a wild animal and he's going to keep her and taking advantage of her fear when that uh, branch crashes through the the window Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. right and her you know we're privy to her dream Marnie is so obviously traumatized and so obviously I think you know Hitchcock wanted us to be sympathetic with her compulsion that this was I don't know not like Bruno in Strangers on the Train is a fascinating character, but I don't think that we're supposed to enter into his compulsion in the same sympathetic way. Yes, I mean, we, I think we find him charismatic, but not 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 particularly empathetic. <laughs> no. She's just such a cipher throughout so much of the beginning of the film, and we don't know necessarily why she's a thief and why these things are happening for me anyway. So I just kind of, she's at arm's length throughout the first part of the film. And it isn't until the rape that I can really embrace her more and say, Oh my God, what a horrible thing to happen to this woman. I don't care what she's done before, what else has gone on, but this was inexcusable. What about the scene though? Uh, the, you know, as people said, the most Hitchcockian scene in the film where we identify with her so strongly when there's the split screen effect and, you know, the cleaning woman on one side and Marnie mm-hmm. on the other side robbing the safe. And, you know, we become so afraid for Marnie that she's going to get caught. And then luckily the cleaning woman turns out to be mostly deaf and doesn't hear Marnie's shoe fall. That kind of thing throws some sympathy her way or identification. Mm-hmm. At least, well, I think that's what you were saying, Mike. That you kind of wanted to get away with it because of the way Hitchcock sets up these suspenseful moments. Well, it's like when Norman Bates pushes the car into the swamp. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you don't, you shouldn't want <laughs> to get away with it. But when the car freezes and it doesn't go down all the way, suddenly you're pa- as panicked as he is, and it, that's the wrong feeling to have. You should be feeling. No, this guy needs to be caught, but you're just as 
you know, terrified as he is. And then the car starts to go down and then you go, Oh, shoo. So it's the same thing with her and her shoe though. Uh, she's much easier for me to identify with than Norman Bates, obviously. Oh, I don't know. Norman is the problem. He's so compelling. He's it's such a compelling, he's such a, it's such a compelling role. I do identify with him. And, you know, when he's cleaning up the bathroom, so meticulously and that sort of thing. Of course, remember, first we think it's his mother who's done the the, the killing. I mean, we've, we've all seen it now so many billions of times. So we don't think right. that anymore. When, he, um, when he's cleaning the bathroom, he does think, you know, we do think it was mother who did that. Uh, yeah. Absolutely. But it does throw sympathy our way for much of the film, thinking that he's just trying to cover his mother's crimes. Yeah, and we're happy to see the bathroom cleaned up regardless, you know, like get rid of the evidence, clean it up, get it pristine again. Um, it really, draws really us into his anality. So that there's no <laughs> female blood left at all. Right. What do you guys think of the Lil Mainwaring character, the Diane Baker character? Because it's like we already have one investigation going on in the movie, which is Mark investigating Marnie. But now we have a second investigator who's put on the case, as it were, of Lil wanting to figure out what's going on with Marnie as well. Or maybe figure out what's going on with Mark, I suppose. Well, this is an, an aside, but in the novel, it's a love triangle between two men and a woman. And they change that to two women and a man in in the film and a lot, you know, there've been some interesting essays written about the lesbian undertones of mm-hmm. the film, which I find her investigation is, is such Lil's investigation is such a profound fascination with Marnie, um, as well as an investigation that I, I find that to be a compelling reading is a, a an intensity. You also get that in the birds um, with the Suzanne Pleshak character, an intensity um, that's going on between between two women that invites a possible lesbian reading. I don't I, I don't think it's you know um, the only way to read the film, but I can certainly see why lesbian critics would would feel that. I, I also you know my own work I've related that to her her relationship with her mother when she brings her mother first old in the beginning and basically talks to her as if she'd set her up like like a mistress you know i think there's some sort of deep sadomasochistic relationship that begins there and that say um, that literally says mm-hmm. i set you up she literally yeah. says that that's do you think that's how i get out. the money to set you up by being by being a mistress to to my boss, and it's it's always struck me. It's never nobody else seems to ever mention it or care about it. But that those words, when when a woman is set up by somebody, given a house and given fur coats and set up, you know, you're referring to a man and his mistress. So that relationship that starts there you know, suggests that there's, you know, that Marnie's sexuality is very, very complex. Now, it's not resolved, you know, it's not explained as lesbianism and wouldn't want anybody to think 
I would be saying, oh, Marnie's a lesbian or Lil is a lesbian. But um, there's certainly queer, queer overtones, queer undertones, <laughs> and then everything else. Right. And the real triangle, I think, is in, in a way between the one that shows the most emotion between Jesse, Mrs. Edgar and Marnie. You know, and it, it, I think you're, what you're saying about being set up as a mistress is really fantastic. And um, it's sort of like Marnie comes home and finds out her mistress is seeing someone else. She's been unfaithful. Mm-hmm. Being unfaithful. And that that shatters her more than anything else except, mm. you know, the killing of Florio in the film. Yeah, and that her mother wants to move the cottons into the house. It's just like, oh. Or a whole lesbian separatism commune there. (laughs) (laughs) There's also that strange dichotomy of the North versus the South, and they make such a point to make sure that we know that Marnie is a Southerner, that her mother is a Southerner, that the neighbors' names are Cotton, that they're baking the pecan pie. I mean, there's just like so many signifiers for the south versus the north it's absolutely bizarre it's true but aren't they where's 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 mark from is it virginia or is it maryland mark is mark is from philadelphia and um, okay is from below the mason dixon line because she's in ball from baltimore but you know i don't being from georgia i don't really think of baltimore as the south but technically it's below the mason dixon line I also read, you know, again, in Morrill's book, that Sean Connery listened to tapes of someone, a man with a very distinguished Philadelphia accent for the role, but she reveals herself by saying insurance instead of insurance. Insurance. That's and you know and of course the novel takes place in England and she had learned had elocution lessons and learned to be have a posh accent and that's sort of the equivalent of her posh accent failing her at that mm-hmm. moment. You know, one moment and it becomes a key moment. So yeah, that is interesting. I don't think that's been much written about. I'm tr- trying to remember who wrote the BFI book, but they definitely bring that up a little bit in there just still it seems like there's more to be discussed about that topic that just hasn't been necessarily discussed and i i mean i don't know if like to me horse racing seems like more of a southern thing i guess because of the kentucky derby those kind of things but yeah it just it's strange how that's set up i mean you also have the confusion of sean connery with his scottish accent and my students are always laughing about that you know and that <laughs> it takes you a little well, bit out trying. of the... Philadelphia. He was trying, you know, <laughs> imitating the guy from Philadelphia, but it it, it was not a success. Uh, no. <laughs> yeah, had they even said that he spent his college years abroad or some sort of <laughs> cockamamie thing like that? Speech defect or something. Going back to the Diane Baker thing, I really love her performance. I really think that she does a great job, and I love just watching her on screen. You know, um, I saw this little film on YouTube where she talks about how, you know, Hitchcock famously did not really direct his actors very strongly. They just did their job. But he went over, and when she was looking out the window – at Marnie and Mark, who were having a significant conversation, he moved her face just mm. a little bit. 
And, mm-hmm. you know, he always said that he was into the Kuleshov effect. I don't, we don't really have time to go into that, but um, <laughs> that, <laughs> right. Um, that, you know, a face's expression is going to be determined. And, you know, if it's a neutral expression, it'll be determined by what the next picture is. Um, you know, if you've got a sad baby, uh, the facial expression will be interpreted as sad. And I think she, he wanted her to have a really neutral expression. And she does a fantastic job at that. I think she's great. Mm-hmm. She's very vibrant, very intense, you know, kind of almost larger than life. And it's just a, a bit of a shame to me that it's a smaller role as it is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they cut they cut some of her role out, I think. Yeah. She's also kind of a teenager. You know, she's sort of a, she's sort of a brat. Yeah, when they come in the room and she's laying on the couch, I almost expected like rock and roll music to be playing. This is uh Hitchcock's last film with Bernard Herrmann and well, they started doing Topaz, I think, uh together, but they wanted there to be a theme song because theme songs were so big at the time, you know, mm-hmm. and wanted it to go more towards pop. And that was one of the reasons why uh, Bernard Herman and Hitchcock, you know, broke their relationship. Which uh, I, I I like the score a lot in Marnie. I think it's one of you know a really good score. But it would have been funny to have pop music in it. Yeah, <laughs> I, I like the score just <laughs> as it is. I agree. When we did the Vertigo episode, I found the Vertigo pop song that like kind of played on the movie you know like <laughs> so they were trying to do tie-ins but yeah like i don't know what a a marnie pop song would be like of course we can't talk about marnie without talking about the color red and the way that that comes into the film and just the i mean i we we're talking about that scene earlier with the lightning and thunder and the nice visual effect for me of when the lightning starts to get that red hue to it. One of the few times where it isn't so many times, it's just like, Hey, here's a coincidence. Here's these red flowers, or here's this guy wearing a red polka dotted, you know, Jersey, these kind of things. But to tint the lightning, I thought was, I thought that was her projection looking at the lightning to see it as red. Yeah, because she's talking about the colors, and Mark's like, what colors? What are you talking about? Yeah, I I like that. Some people talk about this film as expressionistic, you know, for one thing, because all of the, the you know, matte shots and stuff were made fun of. Um, mm-hmm. You know, that was one of the reasons why the film, you know, was not a big success, especially that matte shot of the ship down the street, you know, from Mrs. Edgar's house. So some people have seen that as kind of, evidence of his work in German expressionism as a young man, but he didn't do any color films back then. So I'm not sure if I would characterize it that way. But also, I mean, some people have said that it, it, it suggests the kind of closed and claustrophobic, you know, nature of the world of Marnie and the, the no exit um, experience mm-hmm. that, the, that the whole film is. And it's, it's really not just a no exit for her, but, but for Mark as well, you know, and I think there's a lovely essay by a woman named Michelle Piso. Uh, I forget the, 
the title of it now. Um, but she talks she talks very sympathetically about the, the Sean Connery character as someone who wants to break out of a kind of imprisonment that his world represents and that he sees her as possibly leading the way. But instead of like following her, he has to trap her and betray her and break his promises and and shatter her um, instead of, you know, uh, shattering his world and, and getting out of it. So Lil, Lil I don't know if that makes sense. That. Lil mm-hmm. might have been a better choice for that because she's breaking the rules. But I really, yeah. really like this uh, idea because, you know, Hitchcock was also criticized for, you know, doing everything he did some location shooting, but it was mostly studio, as he liked to do. And things were changing in the world of film during, you know, even in the early 60s, so that there was a lot more location shooting, and people saw it as a very closed film. But, uh, you mm-hmm. know, what you're saying points to the power of it being closed. You know, mm-hmm. and like, for example, that huge ship right there up against the street, you know, is this really claustrophobic mm-hmm. moment. Right. The unreality of it. Um, mm-hmm. And, the, you know, that they live in a world of it's unreal, that, you know, imprisoned by their own psyches. That the sailors that Mrs. Edgar prostituted herself to were coming right off those boats that were right there, you know, yeah. sort of trapped in that world. I guess you wanted to talk a little bit more about the color, I, which I'm happy to do. I also was hoping we could talk about that original incident, you know, with the sailor and how it matches up with the rape. But back to the back to the color thing. I I don't know. I never liked it, frankly, and and, and I still don't. Um, although I know a lot of people have had a lot to say about it um, in positive terms, but I find it kind of hokey. I tend to, I think because of my early experience with the film, take it on its own terms to some Mm -hmm. degree. Um, Mm -hmm. But, you know, and there are moments where I think that it's really motivated. Like the most striking one to me is when she gets ink on her blouse at work Mm -hmm. and she gets Mm -hmm. the red ink on her blouse. And that is really startling. Um, mm-hmm. And you know, this, that her whole world would turn red makes sense to me there. But, you know, there are other places where it it just isn't that, you know, compelling or convincing. Um, yeah, it's such a dramatic moment that you're pointing to. And I think that's part of it. You know, it's on her white blouse and she rushes into the bathroom and everybody's like wondering what's right. going on. And and in, in other moments, it occurs in more static uh, scenes. And that's when I just like, nah, it's not working for me. Well, and sometimes she reacts one way and sometimes she reacts another. Like when she sees the red flowers, it's just like, oh, that's annoying. Get rid of those flowers. But yeah, when she gets the blood on her or sorry, the red ink on her sleeve, it's just like rushing her off. And then the way that she is like, what? What's the big deal? I, well, I, I, and I noticed that in the scene where she's stealing from the Rutland safe, mm-hmm. right below where the money is, there's a whole row of red books. And she doesn't Hmm. react to them. You know, I think, is that partly why she's having trouble, you know, stealing the money? But I don't think that's the plot at all. But I found that a little bit weird uh, and inconsistent. Yeah. I mean, the world is filled with red things. (laughs) 
<laughs> it's like, the, I mean, I can see that there are times when, you know, of tension when red would mean something and other times where it would not trigger something. So, you know, okay, I can, I can go along with that. But there are other times when I think, uh-huh, you know, there's just a lot of red here and she's not reacting at all and she's always filled with tension. So, Honey, yeah. you were going to say a little more about the very, um, about the scene with the sailor in the use of the color red there. Was there something that, that you... It wasn't, uh, it wasn't about? so much about the red. I just, you know, I just think that those two scenes, the rape scene and the scene with the sailor, because that's supposed to be the, um, the traumatic moment, right? That has, that has caused Marnie to be what she is. Um, and again, that has caused a lot of critical discussion about was the sailor just coming out to comfort her? And, you know, Robin Wood at the beginning, at least in his, in his early work said, you know, here she was already an erotic little girl with a prostitute mother and the sailor is just trying to comfort her. And she like overreacts this tiny little girl and other people seeing it as a case of, of, uh, child molestation as he's sort of stroking her and nuzzling her and, uh, supposedly trying to comfort her because she's afraid of the storm. Um, and that whole controversy sort of matches, you know, the controversy over whether people want to see it as a rape when Mark um, rapes her on board ship. It's like, well, but he's tender. He puts his, you know, he puts his robe around her. He apologizes. <laughs> um, and, 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 and there's, there's just this kind of ambiguity that allows people to continue to see it one way or see it another and really, really dig in their heels to say, no, it's not rape and no, it's not child molestation. Well, she's protesting and yep. I think that's really significant and he's drunk. Um, mm-hmm. Which may or may not. He smells funny, mommy. Yeah. He smells funny. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> that's much better than mine, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect imitation. <laughs> and to be fair, it's Bruce Dern who has played creeps for so many of his roles. So that it's it's him. It's just like this twitchy guy. I mean, I I don't. I'm, this is not against Mr. Dern in real life, who I find to be a very pleasant gentleman. But his characters are generally not to be trusted. So I don't put it past this guy that he's going to molest her. Well, when you first saw it, did you what did you think, Mike? I, I thought that he was going to become a little bit more friendly with her. It reminds me of too many other scenes of moms who are prostituting themselves and the husband comes in or sorry, the, the, the John comes in and then bad things happen to the kids. It reminds me of like the forbidden zone or some of the, I'm trying to remember some other films where that same thing happens and it just, it never ends well. And yet this, perceptive critics are like, you know, here he is just trying to comfort a little girl and women get hysterical and overreact. Sorry to kind of throw us way, way back into this thing, but I think there actually was a Marnie song by Nat King Cole. I think it was supposed to be, yeah. Okay. I've never it heard was... it. <laughs> Maybe you can play it on your podcast. Yeah. Yeah, really. 
If I could dig up the Vertigo song, hopefully I can dig you, up. Uh, you can do Cole it. Sings the beautiful lyrics of the tune inspired by the brilliant Alfred Hitchcock production of the Capitol Records label. So it was inspired <laughs> by the film. It wasn't done for the film or pre-film. It was. I think it was huh. sort of done for the film. What do you remember, Mike? It wasn't necessarily inspired. It was part of that attempt to give it a more contemporary. Mm. I don't know if it was released or not. I have no idea. Sort of like the song Lisa at the end of Rear Window. Her mother could have broken in the song. We talked about the artifice and we talked about those matte shots, uh, the, the, uh, the ship and everything. But I always laugh every time they show that picture of the Jagarundi on Mark's desk. Yes. Every time I laugh at that. Because <laughs> it just looks stuffed to me. <laughs> mm, too many viewings of Psycho. I never I never particularly picked up on that, but I'll have yeah, to check it out. I'll time. look more careful. <laughs> yes. Yes. It's a weird insert shot. You know, it's just like, and what's this? picture of Jagarundi. Given that we, we seem to, Susan and I seem to feel more sympathetic to Marnie earlier, I guess, you know, I, I, I would kind of like to go back and just say that Hitchcock really did want to make Connery into a more compromised figure than he winds up being. I mean, we've sort of said that, but I just kind of want to emphasize that. And, you know, partly it's because he's James Bond that it, you know, that he couldn't quite pull it off. But, you know, I think he pulls it off a lot better than he seemed to think he himself pulled it off. I, I find, I find him annoying. Um, and well, I find him to be a very problematic figure from very early on. And, uh, but, but again, Mm-hmm. Yes, and his liking to catch her. I've caught something wild, and by God, you know, I'm going to keep you, and you know, wanting to tame her, and all of that. And I, I know that this is also somewhat the stuff of women's romances. You know, the idea of a man taming a woman, and that that women, you know, often swoon to that kind of thing. Um, and I think that's what the screenwriter thought she was doing too. Um, but um, I I feel that there's this it doesn't work for me as a as as a romance. Even the last line in the film we've already quoted. Uh, yeah, you know, I don't want to go to jail. I'd rather stay with you. It's mm-hmm. this is no romance. You know, she's still mm-hmm. trapped. Yeah, I'd rather stay with you. I mean. <laughs> That that's not necessarily please take me away from here or you know I can't live without you. I'd rather be with you. Yeah. 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 So no sign that she's going to melt at any moment. All right, we're going to take a break and play a pair of interviews. The first up, we'll hear Tony Lee Morrell, the author of Hitchcock and the Making of Marnie. The second is with Marnie herself, Ms. Tippi Hedren, and we'll be back with both of those after these brief messages. 
We asked the man on the street what he thought about the After Movie Diner website and podcast, but sadly he had never heard of either and was on his way to the doctors to have a mole removed. Or it could have been a badger. He wasn't sure. It felt bigger than a mole. Also, he wasn't sure how it got up there in the first place. Anyway, we asked all the famous people, like Michael Ironside, Fred the Hammer Williamson, Ted Raimi, Barbara Crampton, Cynthia Rothrock, and so on, that they've interviewed over there on the After Movie Diner website and podcast what they thought about the After Movie Diner website and podcast. But most of them said that if we quoted them, we would be hearing from their comical southern lawyers complete with bow tie, meat gut, and brow mopping hand. So instead, we say who cares what anyone thinks of you after Movie Diner website and podcast. You are awesome just the way you are, so don't you go changing. If you want to see for yourself, go to aftermoviediner.com or find the After Movie Diner podcast on Blog Talk Radio, iTunes, Stitcher, and wherever podcasts are found. The After Movie Diner, doing it their own way since 2011. I know you know who I'm talking about. It's that guy. Yeah, yeah, with the eyebrows, right? He's, he's in a he million movies. bushy eyebrows. Sometimes they're bushy, but he also sometimes has a mustache. Yeah, was, the, but, but he shaved. Well, he, no, he didn't. You know who I'm talking about. You see, you've seen this, him in a million movies. We just saw him in that one thing. Yeah, he looks like a pug. Listen to me, Chris Gore, and Anthony Ray Bench on the Film Threat Podcast. You got questions. Sometimes we have the answers. Well, Eric, would you say that we're just two dudes who love talking about movies over at the Culture Cast? I mean, yeah, I don't know if dudes is the correct nomenclature, though. <laughs> dudes, bros. Okay, what about movie nerds? No, okay, uh, dudes is fine. Not nerds. Anything but movie nerds. Well, over here at the Culture Cast, we talk about new movies, overlooked gems, classics, and some films that cause us to question our sanity twice a week. Yeah, Hot to Trot comes to mind for sure. Yeah, Hot to Trot was a real mess. So make sure to check out the Culture Cast on iTunes, Stitcher Radio, and wherever you get your podcasts. This is Adam Spiegelman from the Cult Movie Podcast, proudly resents, and you listen to my favorite movie podcast. The projection booth. I know. It's messed up, right? What came first? Your love of writing? Your love of film? Or was it kind of a combination of both? It was a combination of both. Um, writing and filmmaking came hand in hand. I was actually at college doing a science degree, and I came across Robin Wood's book, Hitchcock Films. Any student of Hitchcock and film studies will know of Robin Wood. He was a scholar, and he probably wrote one of the first books on Alfred Hitchcock in 1965. And his writing is incredibly lucid, and he wrote chapters on Marnie and the birds and Vertigo, and North by Northwest, and these were all my favorite Hitchcock movies. And so it's a combination of him writing and reading about his insights into Hitchcock. And I, I really wanted to write like Robin Wood and see the depth of film analysis, which he really appreciated. That kind of came first, and that was when I was about 18 years old at college. And how did you end up deciding to write about Hitchcock? After college, I went straight into the BBC as a researcher in science and natural history television. I was very busy in the first few uh, years of the 1990s in that profession. And then towards the latter half of the 90s, when, my, when I had established my television career, my uh, love of Hitchcock reignited itself. I should say to you that I first saw my uh, a Hitchcock film when I was 10 years old. It was I Confess with Montgomery Cliff. And that really kind of uh, made a, an impression on me. 
the moral ambiguity, the the dark secrets, the the murder, the way it was filmed, the love story. I wouldn't say I confess as classic Hitchcock, but at that ten year old age it made a big impression on me, especially the kind of conflicted ambiguity of Montgomery Clift, who has been revealed the murderer at confession but can't say anything. That really made a deep impression on me. And so I reignited my interest in Hitchcock in my late 20s. And it was a combination of moving to California. I got a job with National Geographic Television. I just thought it was a great opportunity to meet the surviving members of Hitchcock's cast and crew in the late 90s. And I'm very glad I did because obviously as time goes on, people disappear. And it was also the Hitchcock centenary in 1999 a uh, hundred years since Hitchcock's birth. So there was lots of interest in Hitchcock. And that was when I wrote my first book on Hitchcock, which is Hitchcock and the Making of Marnie, which has actually gone through five uh, reprints now, which I'm very happy to say. It's had two paperbacks and two hardbacks. And now there's another paperback of a revised edition, which has just come out. Marnie is not necessarily the movie that fans think of, I suppose, when they think of Hitchcock. And I know that it's been described as being one of the more difficult Hitchcocks to like. Why did you choose to write about that one first? I was doing a degree in zoology at college, and it was a combination of my interest in zoology and psychology. Obviously, anyone who's seen Marnie knows that the Sean Connery character plays the zoologist. He says he's interested uh, in, in instinctual behavior and has a pet jaguarande. And there's many animal imagery in the film. Marnie's love of her horse, Fourio. Sean Connery's uh, character, Mark Rutland's interest in the jaguar called Sophie. And there are many parallels between male and female interactions and human and male and female interactions in the film. So it was that kind of depth of analysis together with Robin Wood's Hitchcock films. He wrote a superb chapter on Marnie, and he was actually one of the few people who championed Marnie when it came out in 1964 because it slated by the critics. It wasn't appreciated. Um, the critics found the backdrops and the artifice very obvious at a time when location cinema was at the forefront. You had films like Lawrence of Arabia coming out, this division, widescreen. And so Hitchcock's studio-bound approach seemed like an anachronism at the time. And years later, we can now really appreciate the psychology and the depth of character and study which Hitchcock undertook with his writers and also Tippi Hedren in establishing the character of Marnie as one of the most complex he's actually ever portrayed on film. How did you decide to go about researching the book? It started very much as I set it out in the book itself. I because I was in England, um, right before I moved to California, I, I contacted Winston Graham, um, the, the novelist, and he was probably about 90 years old. I just looked him up at the phone book, and no one had really contacted him about Marnie for many years. I was just asking him all these questions, and I remember it was an hour-long conversation at the end. He was like, how long is this going to go on for? <laughs> and he was re- really obliging to me. And so um, we had that first conversation, and he gave me fascinating insights. Then I went to see him at his home in Buxted in 2000, and he died three years later, but he actually wrote about the book. I gave him a copy of the hardback book, and he wrote about it in his memoirs, and he said it was, um, you know, really insightful study. And that he rang me up to compliment me, and which, um, which made, the, you know, made my world at the time. 
So it started with Winston Graham appropriately with the novel Marnie. And then I moved on to the screenwriters who I interviewed and met, Jay Preston Allen in New York. I met her at the Hitchcock Centennial in 1999, who is actually my, my favorite writer. Marnie went through three writers, as you probably know. It started off as a treatment by Joseph Stefano, the psycho writer. And then it was handed over to Evan Hunter, who wrote The Birds. And they had a famous falling out with Hitchcock because Evan didn't want to write the rape scene because he thought it would take away sympathy for the Mark Rutland character. And so he was dismissed and Hitchcock hired Jay Preston and, and so a combination going through three incredible screenwriters really enriched the screenplay because researching the notes and the various drafts, Hitchcock definitely wasn't one to waste money or talent. So ideas from each of the screenplay writers are infused throughout the uh, finished screenplay. Were you able to read Evan Hunter's draft of Marnie? Yes, I did. The Evan Hunter Library gave me a copy, and I contacted both his wives, actually. Anita Hunter gave me a wonderful interview for my second Hitchcock book on the birds. Also, Drajika Hunter, who is Evan's second wife, I believe, second or third wife, and his existing widow. She gave her permission for me to reprint from the from the draft as well. I have to say that the Marnie book is so well researched, and I'm just amazed at the 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 amount of infra- information that you were able to bring to the surface with that. Yes, I think I think it's probably my best work because of the level of detail and the access I had. I do like the birds very much, but that came out a later period. And if I could do it all again, I would have done the birds immediate, immediately as a sequel because we'd lost some valuable contributors by the time I'd written the birds. So um, I was relying on uh, secondary sources. And there's nothing more valuable than primary sources, as you probably know, in terms of interviews. What were some of the more surprising things that you found when you were doing your research on Marnie? I would say how much care and attention uh, Hitchcock gave to character details and analysis, um, which is all in the Margaret Herrick Library. For example, he wanted to show Marnie's troubled state of mind by the fact that she puts up a front in front of others. And so there are detailed tape recordings with Tippi Hedren and how they would achieve that. For example, whenever Marnie thinks no one's looking, this disturbed look falls across her face. Most obvious during a wedding reception when the camera's on Marnie and Connery's character is distracted by greeting the other guests. Marnie turns her face to camera and shows the troubled, the troubled look return is the phrase that Hitchcock used. So it, it was those character nuances. There's another one I remember during the honeymoon scene when Marnie runs into a corner cowering when Connery's character tries to impose his marital rights on her. And she be, almost becomes part of the fabric. She turns her face to the wall. She cowers like an animal. It's all, it's all detailed in the script. It's so it's very, very carefully thought out. And that helped me as a filmmaker because Hitchcock was so meticulous in his planning and his psychology and his storyboarding so nothing was left to chance so there there are some moments of improvisation but it's mainly all detailed in the script it's in the script you'd say you know it's in the script um whenever ingrid bergman or carrie grant would question anything i think it really shows hitchcock at his powers absolutely which is um why i partly wrote the book to help defend champion take it on a bit step further from robin wood who didn't have these primary sources and interviews because it was a different kind of criticism at the time mine became more of the making of book 
I'm curious about the uh, the Lily Mainwaring role that Diane Baker plays because you talk a few times in the book about scenes that she yeah. shot that ended up on the cutting room floor. What what were some of those things that sh- her character was bringing to the film that we're not able to see today? There was a confrontation scene between Lil and Marnie in the stables shortly before the, I think it was either before or after the honeymoon. And it wasn't liked by Alma. And that was another thing, because Alma obviously watched the cut, the rough draft. Um, and so she persuaded Hitchcock to drop it. They also had trouble with the running lunch because it is over a two-hour movie. So they had to excise some scenes. Um, and that was one of the ones to go because Alma said, I'm not interested in Lil. I don't give a dot about her character, really. She doesn't come across as some prophetic. So that was one of them. Another one that happened during the um, death of Forio. After Marnie shoots Forio, she's in a stra- trance-like state. And she, she dismisses Lil and takes Lil's horse and mounts Lil's horse to go back to. That's not in the cut. But I think mainly it was due, due to running length. Um, talking to Diane, she feels there was a, a missing period or dot to the sentence of her character. And I can see that because Lil's just left there hanging. But it, it's not really a story about Lil. It's obviously Marnie's story. Diane may feel a little shortchanged, but by that time the audience is so enraptured, enwrapped in Marnie's character because she's just gone through this terrible trauma. I think Hitchcock did the right thing in just continuing with Marnie when then she goes to, back to Rutland to get the, the gun from Mark's safe and then goes obviously to to rob the safe for money. So we're just kept in the, the mood of the character and you can see that with Hitchcock's very disturbing camera angles. He, he's either extreme high angles or extreme low angles because he wanted to show this out-of-body experience that Marnie is feeling. Again, it was, it was all detailed in the script. When it comes to doing research on something that had happened fairly well in the past, I'm sure that you probably encountered um, kind of that Rashomon effect of people remembering things in a different way. Uh, what were some of those things that people might not have remembered the same way? That's why the archival records are so important at the Margaret Herrick Library. Jay Preston Allen had a good memory, but it, it was 35 years after the event, and she said to me, quite honestly, I, I can't remember. It was like ferreting in an old old treasure chest. Again, um, Diane Baker, some, some 35 years later, she was surprised and couldn't remember seeing it was slightly foggy, and same with Tippy. So, but I was guided by the memos and the scripts, and the interviews supplemented them. And if they didn't concur, then I would question the actor or actress or writer about it and say, but this is in the records. Do you remember this? And then that, that would start to bring memories back. So it was a combination of working with the archives and interviews to try and set the truth and also obviously what other people say. So my job was to interview as all the cast and crew, everyone who was alive at the time, which and I, it was quite an extensive survey and, and get people's opinions on different things. Were there any people that didn't want to talk about the film? Only because of access. I had trouble getting through to Sean Connery, um, but only because he's Sean Connery, uh, rather, because he's been interviewed by um, other people. For example, there's a British film critic who interviewed, I'm just trying to think of his name, it's Mark. It was not Mark Mode, it's the other one. He interviewed him in 1907 about Marnie, and it appeared on the BBC, and he graciously allowed me access to his transcripts 
And also Tim Kirby, the BBC producer, had many transcripts, which he generously donated as well. So, no, everyone was happy to talk about it. And again, this is 35 years after the event. So I went to see Tippi Hedren at the Shambhala Preserve in 1999, and we stayed for a couple of hours. And I went to see Diane Baker a couple of times at her Hollywood home. And I met Evan and Jay in New York. And I told you about Winston. So, uh, yeah, I think I got to everyone. Oh, and Lewis Latham was amazing actress, really bright. And she was in her 90s when I interviewed her. Um, but she gave me some wonderful recollections of working with Hitchcock. How would you say that your research skills have parlayed into your filmmaking skills? Because you seem to be known mostly for documentary work. That's right. Oh, it's, it's been invaluable because those periods of uh, research when I was at the BBC, I really learned how to use the telephone and find people. So that was instrumental because if you need the good stories, you need to find someone, you've got to pick up the phone and get access because we didn't have the internet in those mid-90s. It was just starting. So absolutely, no, my training as a BBC researcher made me extremely vigorous in finding quotes, being accurate in citations. And um, I'm quite proud of that. And I think it's reflected in, in Marnie and the amount of detail and research. And that's why I'm very conscious about telling the truth because you do have people's emotions and memories which get distorted with the passage of time. So sorting through the fact and the fiction and the um, obliques of truth. Can you tell me about some of your film work? Can you tell me specifically about uh, The Cat That Changed America? Um, I'm actually, you're calling me actually at the Santa Barbara International Film Festival. I'm in Santa Barbara at the moment. It's a world premiere because I now live in California. It's a project which is very close to my heart. It's about a mountain lion who lives in Griffith Park in LA and the efforts of Los Angelinos to help him and other mountain lions by building a wildlife crossing over 101. It's actually not that far removed from my BBC work or even some work on Marnie because I'm filming in the Hollywood Hills and around all the places where Hitchcock uh, used to love, and he was a big animal lover as well. So, yes, the world premiere is February the 10th, and I'm doing the publicity. And, yeah, there's, I'm trying to think uh, if there's any Hitchcock connections to the film. Certainly, um, Hitchcock is always in my mind when I construct a documentary. I always remember his quotes about notes in a symphony. You've got to hook the audience and play them like an organ. Let's see if that happens. Well, that's fantastic. Congratulations. <laughs> Thank you. Can you tell me a little bit about your fiction work? Yes, I've written a couple of novels. Um, the first one was very Hitchcock-inspired thriller, a murder mystery, and it was, it was a homage to Hitchcock. It was called Saying Mrs. Kingston, set in 1950s New York, and it has combinations of The Wrong Man and Vertigo and Marnie and all my favorite period Hitchcock's, which is late 50s, early 1960s. And it's about an actress who pretends to be a rich man's wife, but really isn't. So lots of shades of Vertigo and Marnie and a duplicitous woman, the duplicitous blonde, and the kind of psychopathic murderous villain in in the story as well. Where's the best place for people to keep up with you and your work? On Amazon and also my website. I've got a couple of websites, Savannah Films for my documentary work and Tony Lee Morale for my fiction work. Yeah, those are the two sites I, I talk about what I'm up to next. Well, Mr. Morale, thank you so much for your time today. I appreciate this. Well, thank you. It's been a pleasure. 
or when did you decide that you were going to write your memoir? I don't know that I made a decision to do it. It just sort of happened. You know, when a, when a lot of people tell you what an amazing life you've had, eventually it kind of hits home, and the idea of writing a memoir was not a bad idea. I've been able to do some amazing things. You started off not really wanting even to be an actress. So you just kind of ended up in that profession and have done so wonderfully with it. I've just more or less let my life evolve as opportunities came along. I call it the open door. In fact, I almost called my book the open door. All of us have have doors that are open to us, and we either walk through them or we slam them shut. Actually, it would have been a good title. When it comes to writing it, did you keep diaries, or was this all just... No, I didn't. No, and I didn't, and I, you know, and I still say, I've got to start doing that. And I know, I just, I don't, I don't. I say it, and then it goes right out the window, you know. I think because writing a diary is just one more thing to have to do every day. I don't know, I just, I just never did it. One of the reasons why I'm calling is we're going to be doing an episode on the film Marnie, and I'm almost hesitant to ask you about it because I imagine that your feelings about the film are rather ambivalent, but how would you describe your relationship with Marnie? Actually, there isn't very much in common with Marnie, but she was indeed, is in, indeed an interesting character, very much so. How did you prepare yourself to play such, a, such an intense role? Well, that's kind of what I did was I just kind of looked at her and, uh, I, you know, she's so complicated that um, I couldn't relate my own life to her. But I just tried to put myself in her, her place. You know, it's a fictional character and it's a great challenge, actually. What was it like working with Diane Baker? Oh, I like Diane a lot. It's fun to work with somebody that you, you know, that that in the drama of it all, you're not really friends, but to be friends outside of that, kind of wonderful. And how was Sean Connery to work with? Excellent, absolutely wonderful. I've had, I've had such good luck with my leading men. Really wonderful. I've been very fortunate with all my leading men. We uh, admired each other. We liked each other. And we got along together, and we never had affairs. What do you think of that? <laughs> yeah, I think that happens a lot, and it's it's understandable, you know, because when you're when you're working together, and it's a, a romantic or you know kind of situation. Yeah, I think it would be very easy to. I just I just made a, a kind of pact with myself that this is a this is a job. I'm a lot stronger than that. What was the reception like to the film? How did you experience that? I was pleased with the way it turned out. You know, it was a difficult movie to do because Hitchcock made it difficult. I was uh, delighted with the way it came out. I was very pleased with it. Somebody told me that I was going to be considered for an Academy Award, and Hitchcock stopped it. No more nice guy. (laughs) Oh, well. Did critics accept the film when it first came out? I don't think so. Some of them did, but, um, you know, uh, Marnie was difficult because people didn't really understand what happens. I think, you know, it's just been recently that that, that, uh, psychologists and psychiatrists 
really get into the fact of what what happens to you when you're a child and and you have difficulty with with relationships and and things that are thrown at you as a child and how it affects your later life. I think that was what was the big problem with Marnie is that people didn't understand it. When did people start to kind of come around to the film? Actually, not too long ago. No, I mean, when you consider time, it took a long time. How was it seeing yourself being portrayed in uh, HBO's The Girl a few years ago? Well, I was very much involved with that in order to get my approval to do it. They had to ask me if I would allow this story to be told. And I said, yes, I will if you will, if you will let me be involved with the script. So I was very much involved with it. I was very, very pleased that they asked me for the for that input. The first time I heard uh, the, some of the stories of your not pleasant experiences on Marnie was uh, through um, Mr. Spoto's book a few years ago. Spoto, Spoto. I was curious, how did it feel to finally kind of come out with that information and be able to to express what had really happened behind the scenes? Well, it was uh, it was good, and it was sort of cathartic as well. Because when you're when you're living a situation in which you're really not content, or that you're you feel that you're being wronged and not understood, and it's extremely difficult then to be in a, a situation where uh, it's your job. There was huge responsibilities going on there, and I think it was the toughest time of my life. Did you get any backlash from that? Did people just not want to believe you and wanted to believe the story of, of Hitchcock being this wonderful man? Yeah, I think a, a lot of that went on. I just had to uh, rise above it because I was the one involved. I was the one who was living it. I was the one who knew. So what people said or thought or whatever was their problem and not mine. I knew that one day that I would be able to tell the story. And Does it get any easier the more times you tell it? Oh, yes. And, uh, you know, something, it's almost like I'm talking about another person. Can you tell me a little bit more about the girl and, and what your hand was in the production of that? I just wanted the story to be true. That was my main issue with it. And uh, it, it was. It was. It was done pretty well. Yeah, I was glad to see Sienna Miller pull your um, your speech patterns and your look more than anything. You had such a distinct look at that time. Yeah, we, well, we had the good fortune of, of getting to know each other and to be friends, which I really wanted. I thought if if this is going to be going to be done, I I would like it to be correct, not somebody's take on the whole thing. That can happen too. It was really nice. What was it? Uh, two years ago, I can't remember exactly when. Um, Roar made uh, a reappearance at theaters, and I was so happy to finally be able to see that because for years I had looked for that film and was unable to find it. Ah, yeah, that was uh, that was a, a major part of my life, and it became my life. You know, with the dealing with the animals, I still live with them. I look out at a beautiful tiger right now. Her name is Mona. Is it scary at all to have these big cats around? No, it isn't because we have no contact with them. None of none of none of the of uh, the people who work with the animals or for the animals uh, have any contact with them because they are dangerous. 
and you never know when they're going to be dangerous. And uh, therein lies the mystery of that. But I don't want it to be a mystery. I want. <laughs> I don't want. I don't need any of those surprises. Can you tell me a little bit more about your charity work and and what you do with the animals? Oh, what we do with the animals, we give them a good life. All of the animals that we accept. You know, I I, I got a bill passed. You know, years and years ago. Uh, I was wondering, why does our government allow uh, lions and tigers to be sold as pets? They're apex predators, top of the food chain. One of four of the most dangerous animals in the world, and our government says, sure, you can have a permit to have a lion or a tiger. That's insane. That is insane. I put a bill together, and I, I took it to my congressman, Buck McKeon. He is no longer um, um, a representative, but... Anyway, he said, oh, Tippy, this is such a big business, it's never going to work. I said, well, we have to try. You know, people are getting hurt, and it's not good for the animals, and it's just a, it's just wrong. So I I went to Washington and testified uh, for the bill and um, met with different senators and congressmen. And after I testified, uh, the bill got passed. It passed unanimously in the House and the Senate, and uh, President Bush signed it on... I think it was December 3rd of 2003. Yeah, and since then, it has taken all this time before we really, we're really seeing a difference in uh, the numbers of uh, cats that are being uh, bred and sold as pets. It's greatly diminished. I'm very proud of that. But as what we do with these animals, we uh, take them in. And the numbers of animals that we're asked to take have diminished as much as well, which is a very good sign. But what we do with them is nothing. We put them in a large area where they, they're not in a cage. Uh, we try to see that the tigers have water to play in. We feed them, and we have no contact with them whatsoever, not taking any chances. And they are uh, content you know, some of the areas are so big you can't even find them, can't even see them. So I, I, you know, it's it's a it's a wonderful place. How many acres is it? Uh about forty. So the compounds are big, and um, do you know how many of them do you have presently? Uh, about thirty. Where do most of them come from? Are they mostly circuses, or 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 who is? No, no, no. Very rarely. In fact, the circuses aren't are are kind of getting away with you, uh, using those animals, uh, which is wonderful. They Most of them are privately owned. We just got two tigers from uh, North Dakota, and they're the, they're the biggest tigers. I said, oh, my God, they look like horses with stripes. They're beautiful. I think they'll like the climate better here than they get up there in North Dakota. Of course, they are. So, you know, when they're when the tigers are that big, they're Siberian. So they're I, there must be something in their genes that uh, makes it uh, possible for them to survive winters and that sort of thing. But I feel really good because we aren't asked to take as many animals in that we used to be. Shows a sign that people are getting it. So hopefully, you know, this craziness will come to a halt. I'm curious, what other projects are you working on these days? working on all kinds of things. I'm writing and just doing a lot of interviews and, and that sort of thing.
right. We're back and we were talking about Marnie. Marnie kind of had a little bit of a resurgence a couple of years ago, I suppose. I mean, it was almost like this weird Hitchcock renaissance, like because we had the girl and Hitchcock both out right around the same time. So much so that I actually keep confusing them in my mind because I saw the girl. I didn't see Hitchcock. But even despite that, when I was looking up the movie, The Girl, last night, I was like, oh, yeah, Scarlett Johansson is in that. And it's like, no, no, that's Sienna Miller. So, And then I was like, oh, yeah, and um, uh, uh, Anthony Hopkins plays yeah, – I was like, no, 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 it's the, it's the other guy. It's the little guy from the Captain America movies. So, But, yeah, so it wasn't necessarily that memorable. And then all three of us on this conversation are – pretty well versed in the history of Marnie and some of the things that went down during that and the birds and the pretty much the terrorization of uh, Tippi Hedren that happened. So if you're familiar with those stories, I would say the girl isn't going to be much of a revelation. If anything, it's actually a little bit tamer than I think some of the real things that went on or were purported to have gone on. And personally, I I believe what Miss Hedron said, but to your point earlier, Susan, uh, that it came out in the Spoto book, I don't necessarily put the most stock in the Spoto book. Morrow also talks about it, and I think he talks about it in a more constrained tone than Spoto does. And I believe her. He was he was clearly obsessed with her. I mean, from every single person involved in that. Uh, and anything that had to do with the shooting of the birds or the shooting of Marnie, um, you know, he invaded her entire life, her personal wardrobe, you know, just everything she did. And, and you know, he was obsessed and it did not help her in any way to come out with that. It, it was not a help to her. Was it in 2012 when she... Um first came out and said she was like actually um, literally sexually harassed by him. Then, of course, she's been caught up in the Me Too movement. And I I heard an interview with her on NPR with her and her daughter and her granddaughter, uh, Melanie Griffith and Dakota Johnson. And they were talking about sexual harassment and Hitchcock's uh, attempt to kiss her against her will and so on. And I read some articles and Tony Lee Morrow was was one of them who just didn't want to hear it. These and um, John Russell Taylor and saying, well, her story has changed a lot over the years. Well, as we know, you know, women's stories do change over the years because they're, you know, it's hard to come out with the truth against these very, very powerful men take some time it takes some sense of of other people coming out and providing some cover for you um in making these accusations i just want to do a little mea culpa right now here on the podcast because i never wanted to like think about that aspect of of hitchcock and i've i've done some research on hitchcock and his secretary who also defended against defended Hitchcock against any charges that Tippi Hedren brought out, um, saying they couldn't possibly be true. Um, Peggy Robertson herself said that, um, you know, Hitchcock 
when when he first hired her, um, started by making an off-color joke, an obscene joke. And Jay Press and Allen said the same thing. And it was like Hitchcock's way of testing women. Um, right, it's like Annie Andra. That's mm-hmm. what Annie Andra is yeah. pointed out. Yeah, yeah. And Hitchcock created a hostile environment for women. I just want to say that straight out. And it made them have to accept obscenity from him as a condition for his approval and continuing to work with them. And I think that's deplorable. You know, I don't think that means we should stop looking at his movies and finding all kinds of interesting and even feminist things. But I, I feel the need to say that. On the other hand, and this is not inconsistent with uh, Tippi Hedren's story. I remember at the 1999 conference, centennial of Hitchcock's birth, Hedren was rumored to be showing up, and she never did. You know, there was a feeling that there was too much hostility by the family and so on for her to come. But Janet Lee uh, was very careful in talking about Mr. Hitchcock and his how respectful he was to her and and so on and you know I think there are different circumstances with different people. There is with everybody. Yeah, this role was supposed to be for Grace Kelly, and I don't think that he sexually harassed Grace Kelly. There's never really been a a hint of that. Um, You know, um, and it's interesting because uh, Mike, you sent me an article from the New Yorker that talks about mm. how the film reiterates and replicates what um, uh, Hitchcock was doing to Tip- Tippy Hedren during the filming. And the weird thing is that it was supposed to be for Grace Kelly. So in a way, there's kind of a disconnect about this role being specifically for Tippy Hedren. But I just can't see Grace Kelly <laughs> doing this. It's not to catch a thief. Not in the real window either. Mm. I really can't picture her in this role and that this was supposed to be her coming out of retirement slash stepping down from the crown for a couple of weeks, as it were, to to play this. It's just uh, I really couldn't couldn't picture that. I mean, a lot of people have problems with Tippi Hedren and her performance in this, but I think that she, to me, gives a great performance. I think, I think uh, it works. Okay. Finally, I've decided. I'm sorry. In the beginning, I no, when right. I first saw it, I didn't like it. But, um, yeah, I think it's perfect for the film. Yeah, I think, actually, she's really good. And, you know, as, as it has been said, if you go back to the birds and see that she has scenes with people like Jessica Candy and she holds her own. Um, you know, I think that she was a, a fairly strong actor in, in her way. Perhaps she didn't have a great range, but I don't think Hitchcock was looking for a great range in her. You know, he had no. specific ideas about what he wanted from her. But it's too bad that her career was destroyed. You know, uh, the last time I said this, a travesty. Milligan. Uh, it yelled at me, but, you know, uh, I think Hitchcock did ruin her career. That's a very bad outcome. It brings up an interesting question, which we have to ask ourselves a lot more right now than I think we have in the past. And it's a good question, which is the whole idea of what you were saying, Tanya, do we, can we handle the art while not celebrating the artist? Can we celebrate the art and not the artist? I love what 
films Roman Polanski has directed. I love a lot of Woody Allen films. Do I like what they've done in their personal lives? Not necessarily. Is this going to make it much more difficult for me in a few weeks to talk about L.A. Confidential because Kevin Spacey's in it? I mean, there's a lot of like, okay, how are we supposed to feel about some of these things now? And now Hitchcock, all this stuff has been out for a long time, but we're still kind of dealing with it. So it's interesting to now in light of what's happened in 2017, what I hope that will still continue to happen in 2018 that we'll have that question to ask a lot more and try to come to terms with what's the art and what's the artist. It's so very hard with Hitchcock because he himself made himself like such a personality. So is Woody Allen, but not to the same extent, you know, um, Polanski, not to the same extent. I mean, Hitchcock was in his films. He was, you know, he, in every way, it was a Hitchcock picture. And so it's a little harder that that article by Richard Brody, which is like very, very weird in which he sort of ties up Hitchcock's psyche with, you know, what what's going on with Marnie. I can see that it's it's hard not to not to do that um as much as I don't like the way that he did it so i I don't know the answer. I'm just sort of stumbling around here uh, you know, I do want to mention one thing, another film because that's where the film and rape totally intersect, and that's what came out about the last tango in Paris. Do you remember mm-hmm. that that she was really raped and on screen and was not, it was supposed to be a fake Bertolucci and, and, and Marlon Brando um, decided to have her be really raped. Um, and that just came out. And like, what do we do with that? Is that going too far off? I mean, I just think that that's the most interesting case of this because there you can't say, you know, well, on the one hand, there's a private life. On the other hand, there's a movie, you know, here you have an actual rape taking place in the fiction and it happened on the set as well. It was, it was both. Yeah. That's extraordinarily shocking. Yeah. And with Polanski, it's a little different, not that different, but he admittedly had sex with a 13-year-old girl. So, you know, he acknowledged that. I'm not trying to make a hierarchy of crimes, but the, the fact is that I teach Polanski and, you know, I think I at least owe it to my students to tell them what happened and to tell them what happened with Hitchcock. We don't know what's happened in the private lives of, you know, (laughs) we're talking about artists, you know, we we just don't know. There would be many, many artists who would become very problematic, I'm sure, if we knew more about what they had actually done. And, you know, that will beg the question even more. Okay, so we can maybe say, the director's okay, but then what about Louis C.K. or somebody who was like a performer you know, who was who was doing it? I mean, there's like this whole kind of spectrum of like people who are distant from the work that they've done and people who are the actual performers who have actually done these things. It's really very difficult. I feel that it shouldn't be this difficult, that we should be able to 
make clear decisions about this, but it's very, very hard to do. Mm -hmm. Um, Right. And did you say, well, he just, he he sort of cracked up at the end. So we'll stop showing Marnie, but we can show his earlier films where he wasn't so bad. I mean, it's kind of ludicrous. um, This is a terrible comparison. This is a terrible comparison. Stop me if you feel I'm going uh, too far, but what about D.W. Griffith in Birth of a Nation? No, I know, I know that comes up, you know, in these in these conversations. Yeah, like it's not really a terrible comparison. It's, I mean, there it was defending the Ku Klux Klan, and but with something like Marnie, the whole question is who who is you know who is the bad person, and you know why are they seen as bad, and you know it's it's a lot more complex and terms of the kind of ideology that is being conveyed. That's absolutely true, which is why I felt, well, this is pushing it a little bit because there is ambiguity in Marnie and there is the possibility of identifying with her. It's not white people writing. And detesting him. Right. Exactly. As somebody from Detroit where uh, Henry Ford is still held up as this great hero and it's just like guys you realize that he was in bed with hitler right you know like he wasn't that great <laughs> so it's like there's nobody i think that you could just like put on that pedestal for too long without just like you know you always you should always question these kind of things i think yeah mm-hmm. maybe uh, not doesn't go so far as hitler <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I'm going to stop short. <laughs> the conversation stopper when you bring up <laughs> Robin Wood famously said that you can't necessarily like Hitchcock without liking Marnie. And I'm very curious if you agree with that. Do you have to like Marnie if you like Hitchcock or vice versa? Can you separate those two things out? Because I know a lot of people who like Hitchcock films, but they don't like Marnie. I say weird to say. I mean, we're free to like what we want. <laughs> just, um, it's just you didn't it's like Hitchcock and not like one of his films. <laughs> it's what? such rigid auteurism, don't you think, Tanya? <laughs> yeah, very bizarre. Like it's just you know, there's some kind of secret club that gets it. I happen mm-hmm. to like the film. But yeah, uh, there are other films by Hitchcock that I don't like, and I don't think that. It's because I have some special understanding of them. I'm not François Truffaut, you know. I think if somebody came up to me and they said, hey, listen, you know, I like uh, I like Psycho, but I hate North by Northwest, or I like The Trouble with Harry, but I can't stand Saboteur, uh, yeah, I'm fine with that. Whatever. It, people aren't wrong for liking what they like. Try teaching a Hitchcock class and you get, you know, you get the full spectrum of that, you know, and sometimes it's really surprising but, you know, it does teach you to accept, you know, you might talk, try to talk, uh, you know, about what is interesting about the film. I mean, that's what you do as a teacher. Yeah. Um, and, you know, try to have the students see that. But it's they they don't have to like what they the film. They definitely don't. And it's, it's very authoritarian. So, like, for taste upon them. I mean, what what you want them to do is to to see what's going on, to understand the complexity. And then if they never want to watch the film again, because it was an unpleasant experience and, you know, 
fine. Absolutely. Totally fine. But they have it's in the contract of the class that they need to that they need to at least be open to you know understanding the mechanics of of the film, uh, if nothing else. On the other hand, and I don't know if this is appropriate to bring up, but there are students who are traumatized by a film like Marnie. It triggers me in some parts. Uh, the mm-hmm. film does, but I'm. I'm triggered by a lot of films that I really love, you know, Mm -hmm. The Shining, for example, and, Mm -hmm. you know, the abusive, um, you know, the abusive father and so on. But I think it's, it's very hard, uh, or, you know, Lolita, you know, having students read Lolita, um, Mm. very hard to rationalize, you know, making a student experience something that, that really does traumatize them. I, you know, I, I'm sure you've come up with this, had this problem as well, Tanya. I have. I mean, nobody's done that with Marnie, but they well could. Um, but with other things I've taught, I've had students come up to me afterwards when we read something that has to do with rape and say, you know, I, I was raped. Um, and I mean, the worst experience I had was teaching a poem about rape. And it was right after nine one one, and on that very the the night right before nine one one, this student had been raped, and it was like, oh my god, <laughs> you know, that it it was like, it was, well, anyway, I don't even though I bring up nine one one, except that for her, it was every bit as traumatic as it was for any individual in nine one one, you know, or for those of us just watching it um, from afar. Put it that way. You're respecting Marnie. her associations, you know, mm-hmm. what she's associating with trauma. Um, mm-hmm. you know, I think that we come there's there's a sense in which it's you know, it it validates that that trauma. If you can bring the student to see that, it you know, it can be very helpful, but but that's right. that's hard, you know. That's hard. It is hard, and it's you know it's it's it begins to be beyond our job, you know, to to work with students traumatized. Um, and yet, if we're teaching material that you know that triggers their trauma, um, then you know then we are implicated, and right. at least and we have to send them to the right place for some help. Right. Or, you know, if you, this is off the topic, but if you allow them to substitute something else, you know, I really want to make it my job as much as possible to go into a critical mode that can, in a sense, desensitize people um, from, you know, uh, you know, from, from a horror film, for example, mm-hmm. um, you know, uh, to not have the experience be too terrifying for them. Uh, But, you know, there are individuals who are exceptions. Unfortunately, I get kind of hardened by my teaching sometimes. And, uh, Mm -hmm. you know, I forget that a clockwork orange is violent. (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) And, you know, and the students are stunned. And and in that sense, it is part of our job to, you know, tell the students that it could be disturbing material. And this may be true of Marnie, you know, this may be true of Marnie. 
Yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure it has been. You know, students don't always tell you afterwards what what they what you know what might have been triggered, what they might feel as they leave. Right, it's, and it's probably the rare when it does refer them to the proper people. Um, yeah. So yeah, I don't want my teaching to traumatize anyone, except nope. about their bad grammar. Tanya, what has been keeping you busy lately? I think I told you last time we talked that I was working on a piece called Hitchcock's Queer Daughter, um, which uh, which was about strangers on a train. Now I really want to do something about Marnie and Pippi Hedren and the Me Too movement. I don't know if I can, but I want to try. So that's the next at least short-term project. And Susan, what's been keeping you busy? Well, I think this is the same as last time since I'm slow, uh, uh, you know, like tectonic plates or something. But I've watched many, many, many very low budget B-noir films and uh, I'm trying, you know, a lot of them you can't even, you have to find some collector uh, and it's really surprising, like, films that were adapted from Cornell Woolrich, whatever, and you can't find the film. And so, you know, I'm, then I start wondering, Hmm, maybe there's a reason why people haven't written on these films. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, do I know that feeling? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) But I'll struggle through somehow. Well, very cool. I look forward to reading the results. Thank you. Yeah. Well, thanks again, guys, for being on the show. Thanks to everybody for listening. Please head on over to the website, projection-boot.com. You can find out more about today's episode. You'll also find links over to iTunes, where you can rate and review the show, and a Patreon, where you can make a donation to the show. Donors get early access to every episode, as long as I'm not running late. Every donation and every rating we get helps the Projection Booth take over the world.
moon and mist Make rainbows in your hair When I see your smile There's sunlight everywhere But your world is lonely, Marnie Oh, Marnie So lost, yet so lovely Take my hand And stay with me a while Let me try to dry The tears beneath your smile Only love can save you Love me Please be mine I love you Marnie Please be this show and want more people to know about it head on over to itunes leave a comment and rate it five stars make sure you like and share us on facebook and don't forget to follow us on twitter just search for christopher media thank you in advance for supporting christopher media by clicking on the paypal button and by clicking through to all the sponsors who support christophermedia.net most importantly we would like to take the time to extend an extra special thanks to you christopher media could not exist without your support thank you for visiting christophermedia.net and thank you for listening Christopher Media. Let's make some noise.